0: What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with the season two premiere of Live from Nerdville, and I'd like to thank my very special guest today, Mr. Daryl Hall, for being on. Thank you, Daryl. It's a real honor to make your acquaintance and uh, to have you on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, man. This is li- like live from Daryl's house. It's live from Nerdsville, man.
0: Yeah, like I don't have any original ideas. I just, I just, I just ah. bits and pieces. <laughs> <laughs> Like this is my little guitar room, and or I've done them from the kitchen and stuff like that. You actually did that show from your house.
1: Yeah, I did. I, uh, it's uh, that that has its uh, uh, ups and downs. I promise you, man. Try try, uh, you know, because they brought them all the the night before, but then they were there at like nine o'clock in the morning, and then like bang and putting things up and all that right next to my bedroom. I mean, it was right. uh, it was intrusive. I promise you.
0: When I think of like the great music shows, you know, your show to me, is one of the last great live music performance shows, you know, out there. I mean, you have like, you know, Jules Holland and Austin City Limits, and and, uh, I think there was a show called Sessions from West 54th Street that that John Hyatt used to to, uh, host. And, you know, I would watch that show religiously because it was just great live music on TV. You know, I mean, it it, it took me back to when I used to beg my parents to stay up to watch Don Kirshner's rock concert and and all that kind of stuff. You're going, you're like, so what? What was the what? What kind of like, like, what was the impetus of that show? Like, going, hey, let's let's invite everybody over to my house.
1: Well, it actually, you mentioned uh, the sessions from '54. That back one right. uh, was that man? That was like early '90s. I forget even when it was. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I remember watching that show and noticing how he would uh, he would put different people together, right. like I do. And interact and they, you know, the kind of do these mashup things where everybody be, I don't know, interacting in very odd ways. I mean, uh, people you would expect to be interacting were doing it nonetheless. And I was always impressed with that idea and it always felt natural to me to do something like that. I, I, I love collaboration. I live for that. I mean, when we, when I do live performance, it's... I mean, you know, there's a there's obviously those formats, the, the songs are a format, but within that, there's a lot of a lot of ad libs and a lot of interplay with the band that's, you know, of the moment. So I really like doing that kind of thing, and uh, believe it or not, I really first coalesced, you know, the the idea of this. I was supposed to do a tour. I forget when it was. Man, was it 2007? I, I can't even remember what year. Uh, it was the year of the of the SARS. The, the original SARS epidemic? Right.
0: Remember, what yeah. was what that? I don't know. It was, but, it was probably 08. Something or like that. Or '08, okay. yeah. Well, we
1: were supposed to do a tour of Canada, and we canceled it because of the pandemic, right. uh, the, the potential pandemic at the time. And I said to myself, I see something here that's going to come, and why can't I bring the world to me? And Because there might be a point in time where I can't go to the world, and fuck me. Right. <laughs> How about that, you know, but it's the it's the truth, and that's that's really the impetus behind the idea, of just do it in the house and, and, and close to home or whatever it is, and bring the world to you, and uh, uh, just in case,
0: right? You know, and, and you know, the, the one of the great things about that, you know, your show is 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 it incorporates a food element, uh, you know, uh, camaraderie, you know, everybody sitting around the table at the end. I mean. How intensely would you guys rehearse for that Was 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 it just kind of sketched out and you just went for it
1: completely it's unrehearsed it's right. totally unrehearsed it's not even sketched out I mean right. we have we had a basic format yeah you, you know, Daryl and the band meet the guest and then we we get together and we and we start banging out the songs then we eat some food and uh, make some food and then we eat some food that's that's as far as we got with format and structure right and other than that uh. It's unrehearsed. I mean, the music is unrehearsed. We uh, The band did their homework and, yeah. you know, they get together early for some kind of a sound check and they go over little bits of ideas, but nothing with the guest at all and nothing with me. So when I walk in, I walk in a little before the guest and, and say hi to everybody, get my shit going on. And uh, then the guest comes and we just do it. it it's right. what you see is the first time, you know, us working it out.
0: I like, you know, I, I always like that, that, you know, like the, to me, if you over-rehearse something for a tour or if you overhearse something in a studio, by the third take of the song, it, it may be technically better played, but it loses that 5% that that great musicians have right off the bat.
1: It, it loses that spark of, man, it's happening right now for the first time, you know, like, oh, this is working you know, once you've once you've worked it out, it's not it's then you already you already know what you're doing, as you said. And it might be technical, be- technically better. But uh, it, it's the the fire, the initial fire of of the eureka moment, musical eureka moment is uh, that's that, you know, that goes away if you don't in, after the first first or maybe second take at the most.
0: Right. And you always had, you know, great musicians on 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 the on the show too. Sean Pelton on drums, yeah. uh, the late great T-Bone woke and. Paul Pesco was playing at the time, and, and you know what makes a great band for you? What, what's what's your what's your litmus test for 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 a, for a great group? Well, obviously, ability. <laughs> That's
1: right. Right. You no, know, I mean these guys are most of them are multi instrumentalists. In fact, I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, the ability to think on your feet and be really spontaneous and 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 flexible, not 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 think. You know, so much in the box. Right. Uh, uh, Familiarity with my kind of music, which is R&B based, soul music based, gospel music based. But then it goes all over the place. So they have to they have to have that ability as well. Uh, So that requires pretty advanced musical knowledge. Right. And uh, so I'm um, and also be able to get along with not only each other, but to get along with me. You know, got, to be right. all, got to be buddies, man.
0: Yeah, I call I call it the 22 hour syndrome. It's like, you know, you may be great on stage for two hours. I used to have a keyboard player in my band. He was great for two hours. Uh-huh. And then, <laughs> then the other 22 hours was a problem. And took, <laughs> nobody could deal with him, you know, and, and and it was sad because you're like, dude, you have greatness in you know, in you. Can you just. Can you just find a way not to, you know, upset thirty people on the road? I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's,
1: it's really crazy. I I know exactly what you're talking about. And you know, when you're on the road, you know, they uh, like in 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 the old old Navy days, right? They say when you're when you're on a cruise, you're not allowed to talk about religion or politics because you're not allowed to have tension and you know and all right. that kind of that. Uh, well, being on tour is not. Dissimilar to that. I mean, yeah. you got to get along. You got to agree. You can't have some asshole in the in, in the midst of everything, or else you're you're in big trouble.
0: It you know those those tour buses look really big on the outside, but they're very <laughs> small on the inside. If you have one bad apple, that 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 bus becomes very small. It, it, you, you see the migration. You know the one yeah, bad the, apple the little front. tribes, mini
1: tribes. Right? Yeah, so, it's yeah. You got the back of the bus people, and you got the front of the bus people. Yeah, yeah. I have oh. moved on from that personally, but the band still takes it. You know, I I'm I'm lucky now. I get to fly, but that's that's, that's another story. That's yeah. a,
0: that's a, that's a that's a luxury. I've I've done that a few times in my life, and I've played for ten rock star, you know, and, and took the selfie in front of the jet, and then I paid the bill. And uh-huh. I went like, with a bus, you know. Yeah. I, I I hear you. I understand it, man. <laughs> so tell me, you I was doing some research on you. Your parents were singers. My,
1: yeah yeah my my mom's still a singer she's she'll be 97 in a month
0: wow god bless
1: and she just did a uh she did a, a zoom concert with her uh, choir nice. and she was singing singing along with everybody but uh and she was the choir director back when i was a kid and she was in a band so i was you know i always watch i learned a lot from her about how to run a band you know because it right. was the choir director and uh i mean we're talking early early when i'm like three four years old and uh and that the other experiences i had was watching her perform in the band you know as they traveled around they were a pennsylvania circuit band because i'm but uh nonetheless they were playing gigs and you know in front of strangers and uh so i learned a lot from that and my dad was in a vocal group with his brothers and another guy and so i learned a lot about harmonies from him and his brothers right uh Musical family, you know, I had yeah. music lessons from the earliest age. My mother was a vocal teacher, too, you know, learned how to sing.
0: When did you realize that you had it, like that you could sing, write, play? I mean, there's there's a point where you go, I'm I'm dabbling in this thing. And then all of a sudden there's a connection and you go, oh, I'm, you know, I'm actually pretty good at this.
1: I sort of always took it for granted, if you want the truth. Right. Uh, because I was, I sang from the earliest of ages, and I sang in front of people from the early earliest of ages. Because my mother would drag me up there and do it, or or put me up there, and uh, so I, I I knew right away that I knew how to do something. I was, the, you know, I started as a boy soprano, and then I, my voice broke and turned into something else. And I, you know, I could play piano and and uh, and all this, a few other instruments. But I mean, I guess when it all came together, when I said, okay, maybe. Maybe I can do something. I was in my teens, I guess, when I said, well, yeah, I can sing and I can do this. But can I put it all together in a package and write songs? That was the other thing. I started writing songs at 13, 14 years old, something like that.
0: Right. Well, you know, like you're from Philly. And, you know, I always say, like, between Detroit and Philadelphia, Detroit had a better publicist. When it came to soul music, because there was so many, so much great music coming out of Philadelphia in the '60s, that you know, you, you know, to be kind of immersed in that scene, I mean, it's you had to be good to to, to stick out. Yeah,
1: it, it it to stick out. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. It was a, it was a really uh, vibrant scene. I mean, I was right in the beginning of not the beginning, but I was in the. In that that transitional period, I, mean, I knew Chubby Checker. I wrote songs with Chubby Checker. That's I mean, great. He, he was yeah. a friend. The guy yeah. Lenny Barry from the Dovells. I mean, these were my these were my friends. But at the same time, this new thing was starting to come around, and uh, the early '60s music that the Philadelphia dominated. I mean, uh, late '50s and all that, um, was turning into something else. And and I I hooked up as a teenager with Leon and Kenny, Leon Huff and Kenny Gamble, yeah, and. Uh, Tommy Bell and I—I I started with those guys. I mean, they were—they were only a couple of years older than me, really. They're not very old, and uh, and I—I uh, I st- I learned so much from those guys. I can't tell you, especially Tommy Bell. I learned how to play piano from from Leon, and or at least what to do with the piano, and and I learned all those interesting chord structures, like a song like Private Eyes or something like that. I mean, that goes straight back to somebody like Tommy Bell, who came up right. with all these unusual kinds of. Chord patterns.
0: When you um, when you write a song, do you find, do you have like a like you know you sit down at a piano or a guitar and there's a you have a catchy title or a line or something like that and it all kind of starts that way, but you know when you when you write a song like you know Rich Girl or you know Private Eyes or you know Sarah Smile I mean the list is endless, you know, there's there's great songs and then there's the ones that you know you're gonna play forever. You know, when you were writing all those hits, did you did you know, like, man, we're, we're, I better get used to singing this thing because it's it's a big tune.
1: I never know, man. I never right. know. I, especially in those days. I, I'm, I'm a little better at it now, I think. But, man, I was just i was just doing it. I had no idea what was going to what was going to resonate. I mean, I never had I never had an inkling of how big you make my dreams would be. Right. That wasn't we just we just celebrated. Well, we have almost two billion streams on "You Make My Dreams" uh, wow. around the world, and I, I'm doing. I I did some publicity about that, and uh, I was talking to somebody in England, and they said, "Well, you know, that was never even released here," and I was like, oh, "I forgot about that. That song was never even put on put out on the radio." Right, "You Make My Dreams." And so. Who knew, you know, I mean, that was the third single on that album, You Make My Dreams. Who knew this? that was going to be one of the biggest songs I have?
0: So is, is that the biggest surprise of, of, of your career? Like, going, I can't believe how big that song turned in.
1: I'm always surprised. I'm right. surprised when things work, and I'm surprised when sometimes when they don't work. You know, I yeah. sometimes, some songs I think, wow, oh, this song's a hit, and, like, nobody gives a shit.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, you know, it's, it's funny, like, the, the songs that I bury, like like track eight or nine on my record that i don't really think about it's just it's it's a good stop gap in between other stuff people always i love that's my favorite song on the record i go why you know and then the ones i really like and and gravitate towards people like "Eh, that's okay you know and it's it's so funny the, the, the having that internal barometer for your own work it's 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 it's, it's, it's,
1: it's, I think it's really hard for an artist to be objective about his or her own work. I mean, you know, you're doing it. It, it. Also, the things that motivate you to write a song, whatever it is, they have to do with emotional, external things that are going on, experiences, um, sometimes seriously deep emotions, all these things. So that influences our idea of what what's important. Right. But somebody else might listen to a song and they are getting something completely different out of it. That's that's resonating to them, maybe individually or in mass, and that's right. not the same thing that resonates with me.
0: Right, right. That's that's an interesting point because you know, like you know, some some a happy song could you know could be played at a, somebody's funeral and and vice versa. You know, you're like uh, absolutely, I, yeah.
1: I mean, some of the saddest things that ever happened to me or come out in the songs and people don't relate to them as being sad. You know, I mean, it's like. And, and Dancing around to him, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tell me about the first time you stepped on stage, like in Philadelphia, you know, and in you know in those those days, you know, like right right now we live in the the era of kind of in ear monitors and 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 good sound hopefully, and uh, and you know, I remember days when there was no monitors, and I'm not that old, you know what I mean, and 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 you know I. I'm 43 years old, and I go, yeah. We we never had, had monitors in the clubs. You just kind of had to learn how to sing.
1: I'll give you a good anecdote. I mean, the first, the, what really got me started in the whole Philadelphia scene was I. It was a a theater uh, called the the Uptown Theater, which was like the Apollo Theater in New York. Right. The Uptown, the Uptown was the the Philadelphia, excuse the Philadelphia version of it. And they had just like the Apollo, they had Wednesday night talent shows, and. I had this band called the Temptones because we all went to Temple University nice. and we, we we rented tuxedos or whatever, dinner jackets and I went up there and James Brown's band was the house band and, nice. and for the talent show. So all I right. walked up to Maceo and I said, do you all know Ooh Baby Baby? And he goes, I think we can do it. And, and they started going into Ooh Baby Baby just playing the song because they all knew the song and, and we sang it and people, people went berserk in the audience. Which uh, that you know that. Luckily for us, they could have been throwing things at us. Got the hood, right. you no. Know? Right. But uh, yeah, and and we won the talent show, and and I got a deal with uh, with uh, a singles deal with Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff with right. Arctic Records, and that's how I actually got started.
0: I mean, in the whole thing. You know, it's funny. It's kind of come full circle. I feel like now we're in the singles business again. You know what I mean? It's you, people put out a song. And, and they put it out on, you know, digitally and it's a, it, it's a, you know, it's a streaming thing now. And, you know, the, the, the days of the, the full length, you know, LP, yeah, we, you still make them, but, but I think, you know, it's like, here's a, here's a, here's a hit single, you know, or here's a song, put it out there. You know, it's, it's not like you got, you need 12 of them in a row, you know, to, to release something.
1: Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. And I'm, and I have to say though, that I, I, I miss the idea. I mean, I still write as you do, probably. As you, well, you just said you did. Uh, I, conceptually, you know, I, it's yeah. a body. Of, it's a body of work. An album is an album of work. You know, it's uh, and I I, I I like that idea because it's a greater thought. You know, it, it, it's what's happened to you in that period of time between the last time you did it, and it's like a, you know, as some of your experiences, and yet yeah, to, to take one thing out of it is exactly what people are doing you know you you got 12 songs or whatever and everybody gravitates toward that one or that one and um i miss the idea that you can't do a whole thing you know um but that's the world we live in and you're absolutely correct
0: and you know, like like sequencing, album sequencing. Now they just make their own playlist. You're like, no, 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 listen to the whole thing. You know, that's you're kind of making a set list out of it. I you know? know,
1: it all has it all has. There's a reason for all that, but the, the, that seems to not matter so much anymore.
0: So you and John were signed to Atlantic in the early '70s I, by 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 Amit and you were managed by Tommy Matola.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: and and you, and the, your, your I think the, the the first record was produced by Arif Martin. Right. I mean, that, that was some big time New York stuff right there. I mean, yeah. how did, how did, how did you get on their radar?
1: It was, I mean, we, we sort of, I don't know how to even say this, but anyway, we had to leave Philadelphia. Right. It was, We had our reasons. I'm not going to go into it, but anyway, so Mottola, I was somebody I, we knew from uh, chapel music. He was, he was a, a kid. He was only 20 years old or 21 years old. And, uh, and he 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 had an office the size of a closet in in uh, in, uh, um, in in the chapel music building, and the guy that I was we were sort of working with at the time took us he was he was signed to chapel anyway so we we met Tommy through that and and there we were and Tommy we just gave him a shot because he I don't know we laughed a lot I guess I mean but. But we said we got to get out of Philadelphia. We're not getting anywhere. We're we're playing our songs to people and they love it. And then the, the next day or the next week they say, well, I'm sorry, they they loved you but they passed. You know, okay, loved you but we passed. Loved you but we passed. And we said we got to get we're to break this syndrome because we know we have something here. So Tommy actually got Chapel Music to take us to California, and we we. Tried out. Group of people out which was a, a guy named Errol McGrath who was connected. This is a long story. I'm going around here. And we he liked it so much that he called Ahmed and said, I got these guys, they're great, fantastic. So we went back to Atlantic Studios and auditioned for Ahmed and Reef. And they said, Yeah, man, you're great. You know, you guys, you guys, are, you guys are the shit. You guys are the shit. And they and they basically took took uh, took us away from Errol McGrath. <laughs> right,
0: right.
1: <laughs> that was <laughs> I love Errol, but that was the end of that. And um, so then we we were on the A team there with Arif and, and b- the blessing of Ahmed.
0: Right. And you guys, you, you guys did two records for Atlantic, and then and then went to RCA. And that's and that's when superstardom hit.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Atlantic was <clears throat> the great thing about Atlantic was the environment that we were in. And they let us do anything. Ahmed said, "Don't worry about singles. You know, just just play, just play." Right. And that's what we did. But then, on on the, the the flip side of that is they didn't know how to get us into the world. You know, right. we, we were we were doing okay on FM radio back. You know, right. Uh, and and she's gone was actually being played a lot on on FM radio, uh, but it wasn't a single or anything. And then we went to RCA because we were sort of frustrated. And they, well, with both sides were frustrated. They right. said, "We don't know how to do this, guys." And we said, "I know you don't know how to do it." So right. we went. We went to RCA, and they did know how to do it. And right away, things started happening. And they released they re- released a couple of songs before "Sarah Smile," but I think that "Sarah Smile" was the third s- single. But that broke like in the R&B world first, and then across right. the pop radio. And uh, after that, She's Gone was out there and Rich Girl and, you know, ding, ding, ding. And that, and that run happened in the 70s through RCA.
0: What do you think? I mean, like, this is a good this is a good lesson for, you know, anybody, you know, who's getting in the music business. I mean, because everybody's had their ups and downs. People, you know, like, you know, everybody has a story about who passed on you, you know, or oh, yeah. it, it was signed to a major label and put out a record and it, and it didn't work out and moved to another label and it works out. What do you, you think is the most important factor in all of that? Because, again, it's just you almost literally like especially when you're talking about, you know, the major labels in New York at the time, you're literally just walking across the street. Atlantic's over here. RCA was over there. You know, is it the songs? Is it the people in the company or is it, is it the timing that makes that that's really the, the, the factor when, when it all kind of coalesces and 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 explodes?
1: It's a combination. It's a confluence of a lot of things, really.
0: Right.
1: It's your manager. It's your. It's the belief that your record company has, and how much, m- how much juice you have with 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 the powers that be. It's your lawyers. It's uh, it's uh, if they're willing to, in those days, if they're willing to put up money to pay off people, right? You know, <laughs> because payola was as real as real is. Yeah. You, know, you didn't you didn't get a number one record without giving somebody something, right? You know anybody that believes otherwise is naive, um, so you had to have that shit together too, and, right? And then of course you had to have you had to have the material. You had to have songs. You had to have songs. You had to have luck, and and and, to, like I said, it's there's so many factors that come together to make it happen, and and luck is also part of it.
0: You know I remember when my first record came out. There used to be a magazine called R and R magazine. Yeah. Uh, was it uh radio and records or records and radio yeah, whatever yeah and uh and it was always i always understood that the company behind you at uh, sony being in my case was Ep- epic records and it was like the size of the ad told you everything you needed to know about your future yeah how much the- money they
1: wanted to put out there in the in r&r magazine right and
0: i, I remember my record came out and it was produced by Tom Dowd, and I was all excited. I was like twenty-something-year-old kid, and I'm flipping through, and I see it. I see a quarter-page ad for my record. Oh. And then I flip to the next page, and it's a full-page ad for John Mayer, and I go, "Hmm, maybe I'm going to have to look for another home here because it, it, it was true, you know." It and, same and, label was it the John Mayer on the same label? It was part of the. I think he was on Columbia, which okay. was all at the. Yeah, so,
1: all Sony stuff. Well. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, absolutely a sign.
0: It, it, it's a sign. And, and to your point about payola, because they had made some laws about all of that. But oh, I remember being told to go to radio stations, and you were playing free shows for the radio stations. They would they would charge money to get people in and stuff like that. And, you know, the, 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 the rep would take everybody out for dinner on your dime. And I'm like going, how is this not payola? You know, absolutely was or is,
1: and yeah. that's that's the minor side of it. I'm, I was talking about actual money and drugs and shit like that, taking changing hands.
0: Right, a, a brown bag full of cash and drugs.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh man, well, you know, I mean, it. You know, what do you think? Um, you know, what, what do you think if if hollow and Oates came out today with the same songs and 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 the same and basically the same uh formula and how would you approach a a career now versus when you guys started would you you know like you know like with the internet and instagram and social media and stuff like that do you think it's an easier way to navigate now or is it was it easier to to get noticed back back in the 70s
1: it was so different because it wasn't easy it isn't easier either side right uh In in the old days, uh, there was less that you had to, less, uh, less you had to navigate. But you had to navigate it the proper way. That was sort of what we're talking about here. And and, uh, uh, now it's there's. I don't know, man. I mean, if I was starting with, depends what I was starting with, by the way. If I was starting with. With the first album that we made, I don't know what <laughs> whatever yeah, right. if I started out with the uh, you know say the rich girl era forward, yeah. then I think that I would have uh, less issues in getting ears to perk up and uh hopefully, and uh, I would work my ass off I'd I'd get out there and play live, of course you can't right now, yeah. and I' feel terrible for for anybody that's new right now I'm, my kids my kids are musicians, and they can't you know they can do in the studio. That's about it. But you, you got to get out there and work. It's that's one thing that's not changed that you have to play in front of people and get a, and get a, a, get a following. Oh, yeah. And these, and these days, tr- tribal followings are more important even than they're just as important as radio stations Oh yeah. Uh, and influencers and people like that. I don't know, man. It's, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not easy. It's never been easy
0: never been easy and and you know the thing is it's there's no substitute for getting out there and playing for 50 people and 50 becomes 100 100 becomes 500 you know it doesn't
1: matter how 50 people just fine as long as they like you and and go crazy and talk to their friends and then you're then you're going somewhere
0: i always love i love artists that take risks even like at the height of their influence and one of my favorite records from you is is a record called sacred songs that was produced oh. by robert fripp Yeah. Sure. and uh and it even says on the cover of the rep- production by robert fripp <laughs> and i read I, I read that rca wanted to shelve that record because they thought it was too different from from like the rich girl and you know you know
1: that's exactly that's exactly right uh, uh, and and this is when i this is when the the cracks in our relationship started with me and Tommy Matola as well because his his their the the business side's agenda and my side really weren't going the same place they all wanted rich girl junior you know they they couldn't right. they could not handle the idea first of all they thought Notes was breaking up and you know this whole Insane idea that I can't do anything solo because it, it endangers Hall and Oates. You know, these that kind of thinking. Right. Right. And uh, uh, and and they did they did stall the record. Uh, they sort of sabotaged it as they did with a, a, another record I did. Uh, and and uh, then I did. I, I it was actually the Sacred Songs project was part of a a, a a a larger project and uh we did an album right afterward called exposure with with robert. And That yeah. we called that a robert fripp album but it was still me and robert together yeah there was some other people involved in in his but uh i sang on most of that song uh, most of that album and they forced me to take the vocals away and uh they replaced the vocals with other people's pete hamill and you know, the Roches and all these people. And uh, that was really, that really sucked because they basically forced Rob to copy my vocals with something that I came up with uh, spontaneously uh, with other people, which was just
0: wrong, man.
1: So, but in spite of that, I'm very proud of Sacred Songs and what I did on Exposure. I think they're great albums.
0: They're great albums. And, and, you know, I I read that you guys, uh, you and Robert leaked it to like music journalists yeah, and you're like like here check this out and then and then it it kind of forced rca's hand to release it
1: that's exactly what we did we we were not going to take it and in those days the rock critic establishment was powerful enough that that could actually
0: influence something and uh yeah that's what we did how did you how did you come to start working with Robert? Because it's like you know it's it's a bit of an odd couple, you know. Rob Robert, you know, with this was King Crimson, like one of my favorite bands with Greg Lake and all that, you know. But it, the his his take on things is a bit you know left of center.
1: Yeah, uh, in some way, so is mine. But uh,
0: yeah.
1: uh, uh, we were friends. We became friends. Uh, he came to a show. The Hall and Oates show back in in like uh, 1974 or something like that uh, in Canada, and I met him, and I I was I, I was then and still do spend mo- more than half my time in England. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in England, and uh, and so I was going I was going over right after that, and so I hung out with him in uh, his house actually in in, in Dorset. Yeah. And, and and in London and, and we just started, became friends. We came, right. You know? And then after it, he he did some things. He went away to this uh, Gurdjieff camp. You know, he's a, he was a Gurdjieff person at the time. Uh, still is to some degree. Um, and uh, when he got out of that situation, he wanted to enter the world again. And he said, "Let's let's do something together." And right. And that's how it happened and that was part of his reemergence into the world after king crimson was to work with me
0: that's great i mean you know do you ever do you ever uh, call out some of the sacred songs uh, uh, tunes on you know in the the hall and oats gig going hey let's let's not, let's look.
1: not in the hall and oats gigs because we sort of have a, have a pact we don't do anything other than hall and oats together songs in hall and oats right but i mean uh, Live from Daryl's house, I do. I do uh, Sacred Songs. A lot of the songs from Sacred Songs were done on, uh, over the years. On right, the house.
0: Do you um, do you guys change the set every night, or I mean, there's 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 a dozen songs that the the arena full of people you know are, are are paying to see. You know, but do do you guys operate on a show basis, or is it you just kind of like oh, let's play this tonight, let's play that?
1: We have a couple of flexible songs, mm-hmm. in the, you know, uh, uh, usually sort of in the first third of the set where we have a few flexible, uh, 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 a few alternatives. But mm-hmm. the truth is, it's a good problem, but, but all of our songs, uh, we, you know, uh, the length of time that we play in a concert, we have to, we have certain songs we have to play. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's a good problem, but it's, it, it is, it's, it's restrictive, but hey, I'll take it.
0: OK, hey, no kidding. How do you how do you um, as a singer, how do you maintain the voice, you know, five nights a week? You know, because, I mean, you, you're singing in the same keys, you know, same range. And and it's like, you know, that's that's a demanding catalog. You know,
1: it is, it is demanding. I promise you. It, yeah. it, there's a lot of singing going on. And uh, uh, I all I can say is that my voice, I don't I don't do anything. My voice is like it, it's 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 a muscle. To me, right. and it it it, it 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 strengthens as the tour goes on. It doesn't weaken. It strengthens. Right. Uh, I I don't I don't really have vocal problems. I mean I'm a very lucky person. I, I just sing. I'm soaking my mouth and it comes out.
0: It's, uh you know uh, my friend Glenn Hughes is like that because I always ask him like how do you how do you sing in that register and he just he like he won't sing at rehearsal sometimes and then gets on the first gig and it's like wow that's the best gig I've ever heard you sing. let it
1: out right and Yeah,
0: to me i always have to ramp up the first five shows of the tour are very critical for me because as you say after the first week you're off and running and you're you're hitting the note you know like but i the first couple of nights for me are critical because it's like it's 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 just again it's like you don't want to shock your voice you don't want it to you know like wake up the next day and you can't talk and sure. you know it's 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 a bad feeling when everybody's relying on you oh, you right. know to sing <laughs> There's no understudy for Daryl Hall. No, no.
1: There, there's you're either you, there's no uh, no safety net.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely
1: yeah. none. I don't know, man. I'm lucky. Uh, I don't I don't really have a problem. It just comes out. You
0: know. You know, I have. Um, yeah, I'm a bit of a guitar collector, as you may can say. You know, uh, and um, I own uh, Kenny Pazzarelli's jazz bass. That he played on all those records, including uh, sacred songs. Um, it's the the sunburst jazz bass that's all beat up, and I found it in Denver. And
1: well, he lives in, in he lives in Colorado.
0: Yeah, and um, I asked. I, I we got in touch with him because my my bass player Michael Rhodes, you know, knows him and is like, "Hey Kenny, you want this thing back?" He's like, "Nah, don't worry about it." You know, ah. I was like, and and he's like, "Yeah, I played it on all the & Oates stuff and Joe Walsh," and, and I'm yeah. like.
1: That was, was his time, man. That was that was when he was working with Elton, he right? Those songs, those albums with Elton and Joe and 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 us.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> I and he emails me all the time. I, t- I talk to Kenny.
0: He's he's very sweet guy, you know. And and I'm like I'm like I have this bass, and I'm not a bass player. I'm a bass custodian. I just have it, you uh, know. And I'm like going, it's a shame that it's not being played anymore because you you know yeah that's the thing
1: about i i have a lot of guitars myself but i i i just gave one to my my stepdaughter because I, and it's a really nice one and i said because she wanted to play play the guitar i said yes please just take the guitar and play the guitar what good is it doing sitting in
0: a case somewhere you know right, right. when you uh you you know G smith's another big guitar collector and you guys were you know he was in the band and stuff like that did you guys go out and actually actively search out instruments back in those days like you know we're like because you Cause you, lo- you love tenor guitars i see you play tenor all the time and i don't
1: i don't play tenors anymore but i used to do that and yes i did with with ge would find these obscure hole-in-the-wall places and then i would find something like an, an original gibson tenor guitar something you know right. electric tenor and uh yeah he he was big on that kind of thing i mean that, that was on his on the days off he would he'd be out and about in all these pawn shops and all these places to uh, to find these to find these guitars man and yes i did i did benefit from that
0: idea right do you, do you um do you subscribe to the fact that like if you go out and find an instrument there's a, some of them like write songs for you cuz i have a few guitars that like no matter where i put my hands it, this the guitar itself has songs in it i don't know why it's just it's just a plank of wood with strings on it and then there's other ones that I don't touch, and it just it, you just don't connect. How do you, when you when you find an instrument, whether it be a guitar or a piano or whatever, like like how did how do, what's the, what's the litmus test? How does that speak to you?
1: Well, yes, I, I agree with you. By the way, I, some some guitars you just pick it up and and immediately some good stuff is coming out of it when you're you know just, just works. And some guitars I, I find really hard to play. Um, right. Um, for no discernible reason but uh and it's the same with keyboards you know i can get a a, a, a lot of songs um well okay you make my dreams i, I, I have a cp30 yamaha cp30 right that, that was a, not made for very long it's sitting right there and uh i it has a distinct sound right that only in the, the beginning of you make my dreams is that sound i mean i didn't have to do anything i just just started playing the instrument, so right. that's that sort of wrote itself that song because of because of the sound of it and, and, yeah. the, and the keyboard itself. Yeah, so that happens.
0: What do you what do you think now? Um, you know, with uh, with live performance, do you still do you guys still crank on stage? Like like, do you like to play loud, or has oh. has stage volume come down?
1: Uh, no, no, no. I I like to. Here lies a problem because I like to play loud john has lived way too long in nashville
0: <laughs> right <laughs> right
1: <laughs> and so we uh I, I, we've worked it out let's put it that way right the my my amps are kind of baffled you know right. plexiglass and stuff so I, I i can get what i want out of my guitar right. because I, I i need to feel it man I, I cannot play in that artificial way i don't i hate fun, i hate uh, ears I, yeah. I, I sing, i use monitors I I like air to move around me. I like to feel it. I don't I don't even understand the other way. I mean, I just can't function the other way. Right. Much to the chagrin of my monitor men and all.
0: That. They they hate it, but they they put up with me. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, it's you're Daryl Hall. That's they're paid. They're paid to do that job. You know. It's the only way
1: I can be Daryl. That's what I You want you want. They're paying for Daryl out there. The only way I can be Daryl is if you got to give me the sound
0: I need. You know. I uh, I had a, I had a. Uh, uh, we rehearsed a couple months ago, and I I, I I crank. I use four amps on stage, side fills, monitors. I love it, you know. And my band loves it, you know. Nobody uses it. We're all deaf, but listen, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's, a, it's part of the job. And there was a there was a high profile country act rehearsing next to us, and they kind of knocked on the door, going hey, do you mind if we hear what what loud is? Because we're not allowed to play. We don't, we're not even allowed a guitar amp on stage. I'm like, yeah, man, come in. And they, they couldn't believe it. I go, they let you play this loud. I go, there is no they. It's me. <laughs> you know? And we don't play. We play theaters. So it's, you know. I love that concept.
1: They won't let me do it. So that is that is very natural I have to say.
0: Yeah. The, so, so tell me, um, one of the things I remember watching Live Aid And you guys came on JFK Stadium, you know, Eddie, Eddie, you know, Eddie Kendricks and David Ruffman singing with you. I mean, like, what a moment that must have been to have two members of The Temptations come out and sing My Girl with you guys in front of two billion people. I mean, and, and you guys were killing it. The band was on fire. You're singing great. I mean, it was I mean, like to come to be born in Philly, work your way up through Philly and then all of a sudden. 2 billion people are watching you on, you know, prime time television. What, you know, what was that like? Because I never experienced anything like that.
1: No, and I only really ever experienced it at that time. And it was one of those rare moments in my life where I could be, the you know, the cliche, I could be here now. I actually knew I was doing something at the moment that was significant. Usually you find, you, you feel these things after the fact. They, 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 when you're in it you don't realize it usually right. at least I don't yeah. and, and 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 then maybe afterward when you think about it you go whoa man what what just happened you know th- that was amazing but in this case it was amazing and I knew it was amazing and it was happening in real time right. and, and I knew that I was in a significant situation and I was that was going through my mind and also a pride of it all the, the pride of, of the, that Philadelphia music pride thing and the pride of that I, my childhood, well, teenage at least, heroes who I was friends with when I was a teenager, I could bring on stage in, 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 after a certain period of time when those guys' stars had gone right. down. And I could bring them back into that world because they deserved it. At least in my brain, they deserved it. Absolutely. And so I was I was there with them in that moment, in that place, in town, singing those songs and it was uh, it was pretty heady stuff.
0: That's all I can say. It was an amazing moment. It's and it's very rare. Do you get this to realize it in real time? You know, because yeah. a lot of times you're just kind of looking out, and, and it, you don't really see much on stage. It's kind of black, and you, you hear the you hear the you hear the crowd, but it's like you can't see it.
1: And you're paying attention to other things, but right. but to actually get the bigger feeling is really really unusual. That's
0: amazing. Talk to me a little bit uh, before we wrap up. Um, just a few words about T-Bone. Like I met him a few times and always one of my favorite musicians, or he was always very kind and, and, you know, passed away way too soon. And he was just a master musician, you know, not just a bass player, musician of, of,
1: to be sure. Yeah. He was, uh, one of my best friends and, uh, yeah. Uh, maybe he was my best friend. Um, uh, he he was an amazing musician. He, he 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 was great in so many ways. He he could play amazingly well on so many instruments. I mean, he was a great guitar player, amazing right. guitar player, in his own style, a very unique style, and uh, obviously a bass player like nobody ever heard. Uh, and you know, he played organ. He played. He was a, the New York State accordion champion when he was fourteen. You know, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, all those things. You know, it was amazing. But when you play, when I played, I was, you know, I don't consider myself. I'm a keyboard player. I mean, I can play the guitar, but he brought, he's used to, when I'd sit and play guitar with him, he's one of those people that would bring the best out. You know, he would encourage me to do things because mm-hmm. uh, he was on a higher level than me, I promise you. And But he would, he would encourage me to take chances and do things and interact. No, no matter what I was doing, he knew how to exactly how to interact with it to make it, bigger than the sum of its parts. And oh, that's just one of the many things I miss about him.
0: He was a, he was a consummate professional and a song guy. Always played the right part for the song, that's you correct. know. Mm-hmm. And, and if it, it required him to disappear then he did and then if you know then he would you know, he very few people have that and
1: hardly anybody has that. It's really yeah. really special. Really special.
0: Two more things when you were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was there any any part of you want to get on the mic and go what took you so long? Well,
1: yeah, every <laughs> part of me. I, I, I you know, I almost didn't want to do it. But right. then I said, well, who am I, you know, who am I what am I proving by that? But cuz I, I have a very adversarial uh, relationship with the music business and uh, those people. Um uh but hey, I used my couple minutes there or whatever I did by yelling at them for uh, not inducting any other Philadelphia people <laughs> than us. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Philadelphia started all this shit, man. I mean, they don't, I don't want to get started
0: with that. Yeah, it's, it's, that's an hour conversation. Yeah. You know, and, and I've been lobbying because I have a few friends that are on the board and I just go, please, for the love of God, the band free. Paul Rogers, bad company. Emerson Lake and Palmer, for the love of God, you know. And I, you guys used to do shows with Emerson Lake and Palmer. I mean, like, you're like, you're like it, it's, it's so obvious, you know. You're like, it's no. like, it, it, to me, it's like there just there should be a short list going. Let's let's induct these people because it means something to folks. I mean, I had a long conversation with Chris Squire from Yes, but the year before he died. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Man, I just wish the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame would would acknowledge our contributions." They're like we, because we filled stadiums. And I go, and he died before they went in, and I'm yeah. like, it really meant something to him, you know. And I know it does to a lot of people. And just a recognition of a life's work in in the business, you know, it's just it it's criminal a little bit.
1: It is. It, it well, I, I find it really offensive. I, I have I've always had a real problem with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because of that. I I don't I don't believe in their uh, uh, electoral process or whatever you want to call it
0: right <laughs> right
1: <laughs> Are you still into wine wine i'm i'm into the brown stuff these days i, okay. I don't drink as much wine i still drink wine but uh, i'm more of a, a whiskey kind of guy what's uh
0: what's what's what's, what's on your radar whiskey wise
1: oh uh, well i I've, I've i've been going through the isla whiskies you know uh, uh, Beaumont. am so right just, so i i said something on a where did I do it? I, I said something somewhere on an interview, and uh, somebody sent me a more twenty-seven year old, and I was like, "Okay, and I'll, I'll I'll talk." To, I just did it again. Yeah, I yeah. love
0: Bohmor, man. Exactly. Where, where's my case? You know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and finally, I I would be remiss to not ask you um, when uh, when can Mike Hickey. Expect the ah. Hanger cello.
1: Now he's got you working me, huh? Yeah, exactly. I'm not selling the fucking Mandicello. <laughs> All right.
0: You heard it here on Live Mikey, I told you that. I don't want to sell it. It's only <laughs> it's
1: me and Rick Nielsen have them, man. We're keep, I'm keeping mine.
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. Rick's got the only other one that, that was ever made. Yeah. Um, well, Joel. That's
1: why I did it because I was playing these these four string or eight string instruments, and uh, and and Rick started using the the mandocello and I and I he hooked me up with Hamer, because I'm right. I, I'm good friends with those guys.
0: Yeah, that's 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 great. I did my bit for Mike Hickey. Yeah,
1: you, know?
0: <laughs> you tried. I, I tried. I tried. I listened. I tried, and I left it. Daryl, I honestly can't thank you enough for doing this. I mean, I'm it's I'm I'm a huge fan and and you know i love the music and 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 it's always great to meet your heroes and to find out they're really nice people as well cuz that's that's you know when i first met bb king i go oh he's a real nice guy too so this is a big mm-hmm. moment for me i i can't thank you enough for doing it
1: sure man i was there was a lot of fun man. it was good absolutely okay well, maybe i'll see there cuz mike mike uh, informs me when we're in the same town you know i've always i almost saw you in charleston i missed i missed it for some weird reason
0: yeah yeah we were talking about it like, it's You know, it's it's very, you know, like on that circuit, like you you never run into people because it's always the night before or the night after. You're like, oh, I, you know,
1: that's what it was. It was like it was the night before I had to go somewhere and I didn't want to.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So ladies and gentlemen, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, Mr. Daryl Hall, thank you very much. This has been another live at Nerdville episode season two. We have some exciting things happening in season two, and I'm building a set. So this will be one of my last broadcasts in front of the the stacks of Fender Amps. I think we're building a set in my house. So thank you for watching, everybody. I'll see you, Joe.